Welcome to the Horror Lab, podcast critically exploring key moments in horror, past and present, recorded at Northumbria University. I'm Steve Jones. I'm Russ Hunter. And I'm Johnny Walker. Follow us on Twitter at the underscore horror lab. Today in the lab, we'll be talking about Candyman from 1992. Uh, the film was directed by Bernard Rose and adapted from Clive Barker's short story, The Forbidden. The film stars Virginia Madsen and Casey Lemons as two folklore PhD students investigating the urban legend of the Candyman, here played famously, of course, by Tony Todd. Today we'll be discussing the film before talking more generally about horror cinema in the 1990s. This year sees the 25th anniversary of Candyman, and Russ, tell us why we chose this film to focus on in our first episode. Candyman's an interesting film for a number of reasons. There are a couple of obvious readings of Candyman, the most obvious of which is race, um, but also there, there are things within Candyman, I think, that go beyond that, that that we're going to talk about today and that relate to Cabrini Green as a location. There are a number of interesting things that can kind of spin off that. The thing that struck me when we were watching the film back is that it seems to be really prescient in terms of current debates surrounding race in America. I was reading something recently about epistemological oppression, which is just... The way that society is set up, some members of society don't get the opportunity to contribute to truth yeah. in some way. A lot of that discussion, for instance, Christy Dobson writes about it in this way, is centred on race specifically and how difficult it is for non-white people to contribute to what knowledge is. And that's the thing that struck me most prominently within the film. You have a white PhD student going into a housing project that's predominantly African-American. And the population within that project has a reality that they want to convey to the outside world that they're being killed by the Candyman. But they aren't believed or their voices don't count for anything. So, look, for instance, or someone calls the police as Ruthie Jean's being murdered and they don't come and so forth because they're being treated like second class citizens or not even counted at all. Russ. Justice only seems to, to come into action when um, a white woman is attacked. So, so when Helen is attacked, that's when you first begin to see police. And, and it strikes me that the film text chimes exactly with what you're saying and with a lot of debates in terms of Black Lives Matter and the justice issues around that. The black narratives of the film, if you like, predominantly are narrativized by whites. So like you see, you've the white PhD student, but you've also got that academic, the professor. He is the authoritative voice on the Candyman, which effectively is a story about black oppression, ultimately, but it's been relegated to the arena of the urban legend. Steve, you mentioned the point about truth and that, you know, black voices in numerous contexts are rarely taken seriously or believed. Well, in this film, a black story, in air quotes, i.e. what happened to the Candyman, not only is it told by white people, Mm -hmm. but it's also its origins and and the accuracy of that story is dubious because it's been relegated to this realm of the urban legend. I think that's a really interesting point as well, the idea of the urban legend being a a kind of relegation of the truth, because obviously the the whole point about legends is they're probably not true. Uh, And so there's that doubt brought in immediately about the veracity of the stories that black characters are telling in this instance the white authorities and I think the thing you mentioned about the PhD is interesting that you have two people doing a PhD together which would be rather unusual actually what you have with Helen is a a white PhD student who is supposedly doing a PhD with an African-American PhD student 
Bernadette, but actually that relationship is skewed because there's a sense in which Bernadette is a much more subservient character in that relationship. And I think actually that seems to reinforce again this idea of white privilege and power that, that I guess is what we've been alluding to and talking about so far. One of the other interesting aspects of how the narrative develops is not only that Bernadette's killed off reasonably early or midway through the narrative, but as Helen enters into the project, she becomes consumed by the Candyman myth. She becomes to believe it more. I think she enters in initially very sceptically. And as she becomes more consumed by the story, she tips over into that oppressed position where she is the one that's no longer believed. As soon as she begins to really believe in the Candyman or starts to become framed for the murders that the Candyman is committing, then she is no longer believed. And even the kinds of facts that the academics would be drawing on, like CCTV footage, start verifying the other story, not the one that we've been seeing, not the one that Helen believes to be true. In fact, it comes to the stage by the end of the film where I was unconvinced that Candyman ever did exist. There's no evidence to verify it apart from Helen's own subjective perspective, and we're led to doubt that all the way through. One of the other interesting aspects of the film is... Not only that the whole thing is, seems to be founded around myth and folklore, mm. as it were, yeah. but that underneath that is what is obviously demonstrated to be a real narrative about racist lynchings in the past. And one of the things I liked about the interplay between past and present in this film is that the kinds of racism within Cabrini Green in the early 90s is very intimately linked to those racial prejudices that were founded in the the slavery era and i think it makes that connection really live and that connection is still really live today one thing i didn't realize before watching this film again is that cabrini green was a real place in chicago it was a real housing project which began construction in the 40s completed by the 60s and demolition began on Cabrini Green shortly after the film was released because it was perceived to be an, an absolute disaster in the sense that it became eventually this hotbed for crime and drug abuse and shootings and so forth. Russ. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of kind of high-profile things. There was, there was a um, child called Dantrell Davis who um, was on his way to school, I think, holding his mother's hand and was um, shot by a stray bullet. It's clear by, by the point that the film comes out that in terms of urban decay, that as a project, that's a, a place that's, that's failing. Something else that the film talks about, and, and perhaps what we focus on less when we think about films like The Candyman, because the racial reading is so prominent and quite rightly so, but actually I think there are other things underneath that. And in particular, I'm thinking about issues related to urban decay, problems of contemporary urban living in the 90s. One of the things that it brought to mind for me was a not that well-known film by Julian Temple from 2010 called Requiem for Detroit. It's a really fascinating film because it's about what happens in Detroit when the motor car industry finishes and that you have a city that has an infrastructure set up for one and a half million people but that now has only about 750,000 people living there. So what the film suggests is you have these decaying urban spaces where you just don't have people anymore. There's no need for people to be there and it has that sense of just a city that's collapsing and falling apart. In talking about contemporary resonance, it made me even think of things like The Walking Dead. Because mm-hmm. the idea that you've got spaces that were once alive, that were once vibrant urban centres, that then decay is fascinating. I think it's interesting that you mentioned space, actually, because it's not only space and urban decay, it's actually a very sort of nationally specific sense of space and urban decay. So I think it's significant that the, that the films are North American, when in fact Candyman is based on a short story, The Forbidden. Uh, which is also very nationally specific, set in Liverpool. And it's interesting that Candyman, the movie, is not set in Liverpool. 
because traditionally when you think about British cities, not only are they not very marketable in film terms, but also, you know, you have a sense of size that perhaps doesn't translate as well into film as an American city like Chicago does. So Candyman, the movie, situates itself in relation to a, a fraught history of precisely urban decay, but also a nationally specific history. Again, and gives the film an interesting historical national angle. I mean, just following on from that, Johnny, I, I think... One of the things that struck me as soon as the, the film opens is you have people driving in these big empty spaces. Mm-hmm. There's, again, there's, there's that sense of kind of emptiness. It's a sort of motif for the, the, the narrative that then follows. It certainly reminded me of the opening of The Shining, actually the opening of, of yeah, Candyman yeah, yeah, with yeah, the, sort of the, 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 yeah. the, the bird's eye view shot. I do think that the space within the film is important and it's something that isn't explored perhaps as often as it should be. You find, I think, with, with most films that you get a dominant reading that tends to obviously get set in stone and then people assume that's what the film is about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ernest Mateus, who works at the University of British Columbia, calls it a final moment in films where critics agree that this is what this film is about. And I think that to some extent, although there's a bit more written about The Candyman now, that's popularly at least what's happened with The Candyman. We've assumed it's about a certain thing. Yeah. But actually there's a lot of other stuff to unpack. Certainly when the film was originally released, um, a lot of the critics were talking about race. It is arguably a very problematic film, actually, Candyman, in its depiction of African-Americans, not least because the urban legend is about a black man and a white woman fall in love. But actually, the Candyman, as he's uh, realised in the contemporary, is effectively a predatory black man who okay. is trying to convince a white woman you know, to be with him forever. And that has, is a stereotype which has a long legacy in popular culture. And there is that uneasy mix of eroticism and disgust that you get with Candyman and, and Helen's relationship, which is integral to the affect of the film, right? Candyman reminded me very much of Dracula when I was watching it, that kind of seductive putting her in a trance-like state. Foreignness is certainly, you know, a key element which plays into the effective potential of a Dracula character. You know, in that, in that instance, it's, it's Europeanness, it's otherness, it's not being British or American. Think about Bela Lugosi's performance, for mm. instance. One of the other things that struck me when we were watching it, and this has to do um, when earlier I was talking about folklore and myth, is that one of the potential dangers of this film being made when it was being set in a, a really specific political moment, because Cabrini Green was a real place, is that there's a risk of mythologising what life in the project was as mm-hmm. a set of stereotypes. And actually, as a broader moment within cinema, the early 90s had a bubble of African-American filmmaking characterised by Boys in the Hood and New Jack City and so forth that were, again, depicting life in South Central and so forth as dangerous places for a particular population, but that were often perceived as being either solidifying stereotypes of what it was like to be there, or, as some critics put it at the time, as being a kind of window for curious white people into seeing a different kind of life, as if it were like looking at National Geographic. So I think we need to not only think about space and place, but also think about what the film is historically as a box office moment. Candyman was released at a significant point, or indeed an insignificant era of horror film production. Historically, and this has been well documented, the 1980s sees horror box office figures you know, drop somewhat. One of the most famous examples would be the, the eighth instalment of the Friday the 13th series, right, which comes out in 1988 and doesn't perform as well as other films in the series and, and, and other horror films that were around that time. So it's often uh, perceived in academic histories and popular histories that horror, as we knew it then, comes to an end in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So you get Friday the 13th, part eight, and then you get Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare in 91. And of course, Freddy's Dead makes a lot of money 
but it also signals the end of franchise horror cinema, for a period at least. So it's interesting that you've got a figure like Clive Barker, who wrote The Forbidden, which Candyman was based on, who also, at around about this time, had initiated his own movie franchise with the Hellraiser films, the first one of which came out in 1987. So you've got Hellraiser, like Nightmare on Elm Street, like Friday the 13th, which has a central monster, Pinhead, an iconic figure, which Clive Barker is associated with. And then you get Candyman, which arguably is, is another attempt at you know developing a, a movie franchise. And indeed that happened and Candyman had numerous sequels. But what's interesting on that front is just looking at, for instance, uh, the 1992 domestic grosses for the, the top 100 films released in America at the box office. There are very, very few horror movies. Number one... Uh, we have, Home Alone 2 it's Aladdin actually uh, Home Alone 2 is number 2 but then you work down the list and the first horror film that appears is at number 12 and that's The Hand That Rocks the Cradle which again is not really a horror film in the, in, in the conventional sense at number 15 is Bram Stoker's Dracula which is another sort of blockbusting horror film. But Candyman doesn't appear until 49, which isn't the worst position to be in, mm-hmm. but it does speak to the ways in which horror films were being perceived as not as popular as they had been so I think Candyman is a film that says a lot about the ways in which potential franchise horror movies were being perceived by contemporaneous audiences. One of the things that, that interests me about that, Johnny, is this idea that you can characterise any decade in it in a quite a general way, and so that the 90s becomes about teen horror films. Mm-hmm. I know what you did last summer, The Craft, Blair Witch even... Um, scream. Yeah. So what we tend to do is, and particularly as academics and historians tend to say, this decade's about that. So what we tend to do is characterise particular periods in ways that come down from us in ways we think generally about decades. So there is a general trend to think about the 80s as being there are some horror films, but it's not a very productive period. For example, Italian horror, which is my specialist area, the arguments are it disappears in the 80s. Mm-hmm. It certainly runs out of steam and it changes direction, but it doesn't disappear. When we get to the 90s, we have this perception that franchise horrors are beginning to run out. When we get to Scream, it's all about a sort of cynical, postmodern way of looking back at horror and saying, actually, we've reached an end point with this idea of the slasher. And that Scream then represents a renovation point, a point where something stops and something new begins. One of the things that's just struck me about when you were talking is about the way in which we perceive decades. From my perspective, I would perceive the 80s as being a really productive time for horror because my interests in the 80s were around the kinds of horror that were being released at the time, such as the slasher films, which were really prominent in the box office and so forth. Um, And I associate the 90s as being an unproductive time for horror. But as you're suggesting, there's still loads of films that were released in the 90s that I would consider to be iconic horror properties. Um, understanding of what horror is in particular decades based on those narratives is highly problematic. You were talking about postmodern horrors taking off in the 90s, but there are a number in 1981 that are already ironic and postmodern about their approach to slasher films, such as student bodies, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And yet we don't tend to think historically about that kind of narrative developing until 15 years later. That's a salient point, actually. And I think we've got film critics to blame partly for this. Because oftentimes, when a film is released, if it makes a splash at the box office, people argue that, oh, this is a real game changer, this is a real significant film. You've got a film which is being singled out as the future of horror. And Scream was such a surprise hit. I mean, it was released at Christmas time in the United Kingdom, which I think is interesting, you know, because when you think of Scream, you think of summer high schools and all that. Because it was such a, a surprise hit, People, you know, people walk up and realise, oh, this is new, this is different. Well, in fact, to be fair, two years previous to that, Wes Craven made New Nightmare, which is arguably more 
self-reflexive and meta than Scream is. Absolutely. And indeed, you know, you go back to the 1980s, Student Bodies is a good example, but Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, which is comedy. It plays out like a self-aware how formulaic have slasher movies become. Yeah. So, Russ, your point about historical narratives demarcating specific trends is reductive and it's problematic and we should probably move away from doing that. I absolutely agree. I mean, and you're, you're both dead right. Of course, there is stuff going on in the 80s. There's a lot of stuff. The thing with the slashes is, although they're talked about in academia, they're often sidelined critically because they might be successful for a while, but they're seen as quite a low form. Mm-hmm. And so when, we, when yeah. the sort of critical narrative of that decade and that period, they're often sort of sidelined as not very important. Yeah. And so you get a sort of blank, a bit of a void, I think. I've got a list of films here that I just want to read out to you and just get your reaction in terms of how we could connect all of these films and if we could. So, Silence of the Lambs, 1991. The Craft, 1996. Uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer, 1997. Blair Witch, 1999. The Sixth Sense, 1999. We mentioned Bram Stoker's Dracula from 92. Sleepy Hollow from 1999. And then even, what about the success of something like The Ring, for example, in 1998? You know, international horror, stepping outside the bounds of that. So a narrative that's really domestic, again, can be quite reductive too, I think. What strikes me from that list is it's really hard to connect all of those films. And we so we stereotype, we pigeonhole this decade as being about teen films. But actually, you know, there are a lot of those films that are about teenagers, but there are a lot of those that don't connect. Think about what's on TV at this point, right? At the end of the decade, we get Dawson's Creek, which is huge amongst teenage audiences. Mm-hmm. And we have a number of TV teen dramas where teenagers are the central protagonists. Even going back to 1991 with Eerie, Indiana, but also, you know, My So-Called Life in 1994, Beverly Hills 90210 in 1990, Pi of Five, things where you have teenagers as, as the driving narrative force or the central protagonist at least. So there's a moment in the 90s where clearly there's an an interest in teen audiences, in teen culture generally. But the list of horror films that I just read out suggests that actually horror is really hard to characterise. Yeah. You make the significant point about teen dramas. I mean, if you think about who horror films are made for, which demographic, traditionally it has been young people. And we can trace that back to the 50s with things like I Was a Teenage Werewolf, for instance. And Richard Noel, in fact, in his book Blood Money, writing about the, the late 70s, early 1980s, makes some really interesting connections between slasher films like Halloween, Friday the 13th, Black Christmas, between those films and frat comedies like Animal House, Porky's, all of those, yeah. those films that were being made for teenagers. He maintains that whereas historically horror films have been equated with pornography as being marginal and seen in grindhouses, Noel argues very convincingly that actually when you've got a film company like Paramount distributing Friday the 13th, we are not talking about niche audiences here. It's logical that producers of these films are not just going to look at horror as a narrow area and say, oh, we'll make a horror film. They're like, no, 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 we've got to make a teen film that's going to appeal to a quite a specific demographic, but a demographic that is actually made up of, of a lot of different kinds of young people. And it's really difficult when we start talking about narratives of horror cinema and so forth, because there are other things that we're excluding from that narrative. And your points about teen drama on TV are the perfect example in this so far as clearly a film like Scream was being marketed partially to the Party of Five crowd because of the presence of Neve Campbell as a recognisable figure. Exactly the same thing with I Know What You Did Last Summer and Jennifer Love Hewitt. There are those connections that the audience are expected to make or are expected to go to those films with some degree of familiarity. If we think about the connection between horror and television at this time, teen horror, for want of a better phrase, I don't particularly like that expression, but for want of a better phrase, you've got TV personalities that appear in these films. And that says something about the transmedia presence of horror as well. 
by the time you get to the, the 90s and even in the 80s, really, you shouldn't distinguish between horror films that are released theatrically and stuff that's going on on other media formats, whether that be television, video, all of these are linked and it's important to identify what those links are. I've increasingly th- thought that about the cinematic world we live in now where you have things simultaneously released in the cinema and streaming online. But actually the idea of going to the cinema now is maybe culturally slowly being replaced by the idea of watching something like Netflix. Mm-hmm. And actually I think what that helps us to do is to get to that point where we start to think a focus just on cinematic and theatrical releases becomes untenable. Just to go back to talking about that, you know, the 90s specifically is a, is, is a decade of horror production. You know, we talk about franchises like Friday the 13th coming to an end and then new ones starting like, like Scream and whatnot. But in fact, there were horror films that were being made deliberately not to be released theatrically, that were being released onto video that were themselves part of their own franchises. And I'm thinking of films like The Puppet Master and Demonic Toys and Dollman and all those films which were produced and um, some, some of which were directed by Charles Band. By the late 1980s, 1989, Charles Band recognises that it's too expensive to release things theatrically. If he's not distributing them, we can't control what markets they're released to. So Charles Band recognises that we should make films for video, and that's when you get films like Puppet Master, and he effectively devises his own new horror film franchises. That leads to something really interesting about genre. With something like horror, what typically might be seen as representing a particular decade would be a particular film, so Scream in the 90s, for yeah. example, or, or yeah. even any other yeah. ones that I read out. But actually, often what's most typical are those films in the middle that people forget about, mm-hmm. or those films which have a relatively low profile, but are the things that people will have watched on video in this case or on, on DVD. I mean, it brought to mind a couple of years ago, I, I joined Love Film by Post. And I got a film called Bloodsucker Leads the Dance. And I thought, what a great title. And it's an Italian horror film from the mid-70s, uh, 1975, by Alfredo Rizzo. And when I watched it, I thought, this is not particularly well shot. It's a sort of weird mix of Italian horror, gothic horror, and a giallo. It's not very well acted either. It was a badly dubbed version. Sounds great. Sounds like our kind of film, right? <laughs> yeah. But it struck me that there's a lot of films made like that in Italy in the 70s that maybe now people are increasingly looking to, to release. But actually, there are lots that aren't released. So there are loads of films that were made that we just forget about because they're somewhere in the middle or they're below middle in terms of of box office or in terms of popularity. And I think the list of films I read out just now, those are the high profile things. But actually we forget about all that other stuff and it's a sort of cultural memory. Maybe this is the important job of film historians is to go back and say, think about all that other stuff. I mean, the discussion we were having just now about teen television, it's really easy to forget all of that. It's the, it's the iceberg, isn't it? Tip of the iceberg stuff. We see what's above, we don't see what's below. Yeah. The other way in which this narrative is formed is by a process of curation. Now I'm on Amazon and Netflix. I find it really difficult not only to navigate through Netflix, but I've seen all the horror films on Netflix, so there's nothing there for me to see. So you are the person that Netflix are catering to when they stock up all those dreadful horror films that nobody else wants to well, watch. Well, there's really not very many on there. Part of the problem for me is that the curation process has happened within Netflix HQ or whatever about what they think is going to sell. Well, have you seen Shudder? The tagline is something like Netflix, but for horror fans. Shudder makes horror films as well. Right. So Shudder is making horror films exclusively for, for VOD release. Again, it's, sort of, it's pointing towards the centrality of home viewing, which has been there since video, really, since the mid-1980s, when Fangoria started writing about all these films that you can watch on video. And in fact, I'm doing a bit of work on this at the minute. You get a film made in 1985 called Blood Cult, which is shot on video by a professional company. When you, when you watch the film, it looks like a TV show from the period. It's, it's got a video aesthetic, but it's not a shoddily made film by any stretch of the imagination. 
and that initiates a number of other films that are made specifically for home viewing. Now, that's not to say that home viewing today is the same as what home viewing was in the 80s, but it does speak to a trend in horror production to bypass theatrical release and not even aspire to be as popular, but to either be innovative and do something slightly different or to ride the coattails of a successful theatrical film like Scream, because, of course, there were a number of straight-to-video horror films that were a bit like Scream in the mid-90s to late-90s. Final Stab. Final Stab. I was looking at some of these uh, the other day. You've got films like The Brotherhood, directed by uh, David Dakota, which has been billed as a gay slasher film. So there's all this talk about you know the male gaze and, and whatnot. Well, those films try to subvert that by having half-naked men instead of half-naked. Lots of men gazing at half-naked men. That yeah. subverts the male gaze. <laughs> <laughs> so there are interesting things happening, even within the mould of the teen horror movie. The Brotherhood has been written about a little bit in the last few months. But has it been entered into the canon of late 90s, early 2000s horror cinema? I'm not so sure. It's the idea of there being a narrative and that there are a number of films that don't get entered into that grand narrative. And the ones that do are the, the high profile ones. That is the job of film historians, but it should also be the job of film critics, really. Mm-hmm. Imagine going to a film festival and you're watching straight to video stuff as something really quite different to, to what might normally get shown in retrospectives. I suspect there probably are straight to video film festivals, but it's just that we don't hear about them because we're hearing about the <laughs> yeah. ones that yeah. <laughs> you're right. theatrical horror, right? Well, recently there was a shot on video film festival in, in America. The Alamo Draft House do things like this. Can I bring the discussion back to Candyman? This talk about home viewing Candyman had two sequels, one of which was released in the mid-90s, which didn't do as well. But then the the third Candyman film emerges in the early 2000s, direct to DVD. It did reinvigorate Tony Todd's career as a sort of a B-horror movie actor for a while. But I do think for a lot of people that would be, oh, hasn't Candyman fallen from grace? Maybe Candyman has fallen from grace by being released direct to DVD. Or maybe Candyman's just found his audience. Mm. And that's not to say that Candyman 3 is any less of a film because it went to DVD. It's just clearly the business model has changed and film producers are going to adapt and respond to that model. And if direct-to-DVD, VOD, makes a film target its key demographic, well, that that inevitably is what's going to happen. This is another one of those label-based narratives we've not only got 90s horror as being a label that doesn't accurately represent the period but also a label like directed dvd can really affect a film's prospects if it's suggested that that's what it is i also have a problem with sequels because a lot of sequels are built into that narrative of diminishing returns Whereas actually I think there's a lot of sequels where because the narrative is established and we don't need to know who the lead characters are anymore because we're expected to be familiar with them, they've become much more fluid and more interesting in terms of what they do with space and place, for instance. So that's another one of those ways of labelling that I find really problematic. Obviously the film industry also finds that way of labelling really problematic, which is why we now don't get Friday the 13th Part 13, we get a reboot, which is just a sequel without the 13th part. (laughs) I'm really concerned by director dvd or director video as being a way of writing off the film before you even encounter the film barbara Klinger in 2006 or 7 published beyond the multiplex which explores the stigma around video release oftentimes historical narratives are anchored by films that are released theatrically anyway Mm. because video data is so difficult to find because it's only in recent years really that trade publications like variety and screen international have given any extensive coverage about uh, video dvd blu-ray releases the reason why theatrical 
releases have statistics attached to them. Is that there's a box office figure, right? One of the problems with that is that there's an equation of dollars with people. We don't know who's going to see these films. It might just be one person 10 million times. And for the video industry, presumably it's units sold. And it becomes much more apparent that there's a mismatch between number of DVDs sold, for mm-hmm. instance, especially in the rental market, to the amount of people who are watching. I think it's an interesting void in our knowledge as a completely new model is stabilised of, of how people watch things and how things are, are both produced and then how it's exhibited online. The whole thing is changing and I think we're at a point where we're going to have to sit back and see what happens. Next time on The Horror Lab, we'll be discussing Bride of Frankenstein, made in 1935. And we'll also be discussing the relationship between horror cinema and the Gothic. If you're a researcher working in the area and would like to get involved in the programme, please get in touch. Send any questions or comments to at the underscore horror lab 